0: Some of you have suggested or mentioned, I should say, to me that you haven't heard anybody preach through Song of Songs before. I don't know why. (laughs) We are in perhaps the most explicit book of the Bible when it comes to matters of romantic married love. And I do not anticipate to go through every single verse of the book. For matters of content, but I will just say up front that this may be the most embarrassing sermon for you in this service. It certainly was one of embarrassing for me to write in the series, not service. Um, however, I also had a conversation after the first sermon with somebody, and they brought up a good point, and is, if you can't talk about this stuff at church, where are you going to go? <laughs> Um, and I think a, probably perhaps a big problem of perhaps people who profess to be Christians, but whenever it comes to matters of married love, seem to act like the world, could be because the church is too embarrassed to talk about it. So I'll take one for the team, and if you don't come back next week, I still love you. Um, <laughs> get it? Love? Anyways. Um, in our story in the Song of Songs, last week there seemed to be A flashback, the courting days, if you will, of the couple who I take to be Solomon and then his wife, apparently a peasant from the Lebanon countryside. And this dichotomy of king and peasant, palace, city life, if you will, and country life is really going to be a focal problem for this couple. It's hard to discern that this is the problem, but as we read through and and unpack all of this imagery and symbolism throughout the book, I believe we will see that to be the case. Either that or I just wrote a very invalid, incorrect sermon. (laughs) Um, But it's going to start here in Song of Songs 3, and so in honor of reading the Lord's Word one last time, I invite you to stand, and we're just going to read the first five verses that I intend to unpack so Song of Songs 3, verses 1 through 5, I invite you to stand if you're able to. The bride is speaking these words. She's saying, In my bed at night I sought the one I love. I sought him but did not find him. I will arise now and go about the city through the streets and the plazas. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The guards who go about the city found me. I asked them, have you seen the one I love? I had just passed them when I found the one I love. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of the one who conceived me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Let's pray. Father, this is, to say the least, it's an interesting thing, this romantic love that you bestow on people, that you give to people as a gift. Many of us don't ever get to experience it, but I do know you fill us and satisfy us in other ways for the people that like Jesus, who don't get to experience uh, married love. And for those of us who you do give us, sometimes it's bittersweet. It's highs and lows. It's mountains and valleys. It's confusing, yet enjoyable. I pray that as we unpack this text today, that you would be gracious in giving wisdom to us. You would be pouring out your spirit on us, speaking to us in ways that I couldn't have fathomed as I felt you inspire me to write this, because we came here to listen to your voice and not mine. So Holy Spirit, have your way in us. And Father, for those of us, again, who are hard-hearted, who have built up defenses, who don't want to hear what you have to say to us, well, thank you, first of all, for bringing us here in the first place. (laughs) But I just pray that you would indeed speak to us and speak to all of us that we might respond accordingly to you. Have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. I intend to study to go through today from the beginning of chapter 3 through uh, the beginning of chapter 5. But as I said, we were going to dance and skirt around some of it because of its content. But what's book-ending, this entire section, though, appears to be, to me, two dreams. Unsurprisingly, because this book is so debated, people debate, are these dreams, aren't they? People even wonder if this book is even historical in nature or or just uh, a fictional account that Solomon composed. I tend to think that it is likely, like many fictional writers, perhaps fictional, inspired by true events. That just as we read Shakespeare and we pray people don't talk that long, (laughs) um, so this might be the case where perhaps it is a a real story about Solomon and a smitten relationship that he had, but as I've been unpacking some of the imagery, I hardly think that Solomon and the gal he fell in love with spoke to each other like ancient uh, Shakespearean Characters. The bride here, I think, is either dreaming or imagining. And hold on, I hear Christie's cell phone that I need to. Here it is. <laughs> there we go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay. the The bride here is either dreaming or imagining. Uh, and we're just hearing a poetic description. Therefore, it's going to be a little embellished or, or some exaggerated longings of the bride. And I think in order to understand where the husband is at in this um, first five verses where Solomon is at, and to understand what the bride does with Solomon when she finds him is directly related to the ending of chapter 2. And at the ending of chapter 2, we heard also from the bride, I talked about this last week, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. And if you remember, I said biblically or Hebraically speaking, these are indicative, foxes are, of problems or disruptions, hindrances in the marriage. And the bride here seemed to be saying to Solomon, catch the foxes as in handle the problems. Find the problems that will potentially ravage the vineyard then the wife gives the first of three commitment style statements that she will give throughout the book she says in verse 16 my love is mine and I am his and then she pairs it with at first glance what seems to be a completely random statement because this is what I say to Christie all the time, right? My love is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. Oh, thank you. That's so romantic. Can you put it on a card? Give it to me. <laughs> this statement, though, rather is basically a statement of his vocation. He feeds among the lilies. The idea is that he's feeding his sheep among the lilies. It's, it's flowery language saying he's a shepherd. He's a king of Israel. And so the idea is that the bride is saying, my love is mine, I am his, we're committed, we're committed even in light of the fact of who he is, a busy man, and I'm having to share him literally with the nation of Israel. Even so, she always wants him to come home, always wants him to come back to her. She says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn around. That's the return to me statement. My love and be like a gazelle. Or a young stag on the divided mountains. And that again was symbolism of come back to me fast, hurry. (laughs) Using some provocative imagery earlier from chapter 2. So, the tension of deal with the problems in the relationship. And I'm going to share you with your job. Is now showing up in more ways as we begin chapter 3. And simply because she's expecting him in bed next to her and that she takes him back to, quote, my mother's house and no longer her own house, I'm assuming that we're back from the past. We're no longer in a flashback. Rather, we're back to either married life or since the section right after these five verses is the wedding, we may be envisioning married life. Three one again, uh, she says... In my bed at night, says the bride, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but did not find him. Well, where is he at? The remainder of the short dream is going to make it appear she hasn't a clue. Now, I'm going to throw a theory out there and say the reality is is he's at work. <laughs> he's, he's the king. He may not be hurt by her side every single night. He may not be by her side every single morning. He's a busy guy. And so he's busy with so many tasks that kings must deal with. Perhaps she can't find him anywhere, wouldn't know where to start. Verse 2, she says, I will arise now and go about the city through the streets and the plazas. Now, a reason that I take this and the next dream, the one that we're going to end on, the reason I take them to be dreams is what is a queen of Israel doing walking the streets of the city alone? Now, this wouldn't be the first story of a royal queen who sought to walk the streets and just to feel common, but I still take this to be a dream. And she continues, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but did not find him. The guards who go about the city found me. Now, the language suggests that they approached her. They're the watchmen, and perhaps about the 40th time this gal frantically walked by them, searching to and fro, maybe they thought they'd help her out. (laughs) Now, it won't be the case in the last dream we go through. These guys aren't actually going to be very helpful, and we'll talk about that when we get there. She She says, I asked them, have you seen the one I love? Maybe you're noticing a repetitious name she has for her husband. By this time, the one I love. It's been said at least three times. Other translations would say the one my soul loves. But because soul in our day and age and how it was used in the Hebrew are slightly different and that the Hebrew word here could refer to all of a person's being, body, mind, soul, and heart. Whereas we hear soul and it may be less than the whole. The CSB just chose the one I love. And that's a key here. In the passage, she loves him with her whole being. And we're seeing in a picture, a vision, a dream, that even in her search for him, because he's away or and he's at work, her love for him is still intact. It's still what is defining her. It's undergirding the situation. I love this man. Does your love for your spouse remain even in conflict? Or do you allow the conflict to change your affections? She's seeking the one she loves, not that man who's losing brownie points. (laughs) He is the one she loves, and in conflict, she's seeking him out. We see, though, that she has some rather bizarre plans for him. (laughs) We continue in uh, verse 4. She says, I had just passed them, the city guards of the watchmen. When I found the one I love, I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house to the chamber Of the one who conceived me. Now what's going on here? (laughs) And this is another reason I take this to be a dream. It just seems bizarre, right? King Solomon's out late at night doing king stuff, apparently in the town. She searches for him, the queen, out in public at night. The night watchmen don't know her or you know, don't inform the army that the king's missing. And when she does find the king, she takes him and says, forget the palace, we're going to my parents' place. Like, That happens every day, right? Um, The symbolism is this. She isn't so sure about this queen business. (laughs) She's dreaming about the reality of married life with Solomon. He's going to be busy. He's not going to be there every night. She's going to have to share him. There might be long spurts where he's out at war. He's not going to be accessible for long amounts of time. And the image of the dream is this. Let's retire out of public life. I want to have you for myself. Instead of my coming on board with your life and government, how about you come my way? Let's live my life, right? Does that make sense? And then for the second time in the book, we hear a bookmark. She says, young woman of Jerusalem, I charge you an oath by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. So you can try that out in your next next business transaction, see if that works. This says, uh, I charge you not on something sacred, but on rather making an oath uh, from some of the provocative imagery in the book. And she says, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. This uh, bookmark occurs three times in the Song of Solomon. And each time it appears to be a charge to, to keeping the marriage bed, as it were, kept pure, until the appropriate time. And this charge is given in context. It's given after the story lends itself to certain considerations around marriage. And here's the consideration that the bride has for the ambiguous hearers, count the cost. As in, can you be on board with marrying the person you're considering to marry? Have you considered what their job means? Perhaps what their family means? Can you make out their Life trajectory, can you imagine what life in that trajectory will mean? For the bride here, as we have been seeing and saying, he's a king, he's busy, not always accessible. So in other words, do some thinking when marriage is on the table. (laughs) And here's what I fear whenever we hear a sort of charge like this. Well, it's too late. (laughs) I wish I had did some thinking. I wish I did know about this issue or think that idea through about them or or have the foresight to consider this about them. But the story of the Song of Songs is actually one where the bride eventually overcomes the conflict here. <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better, though. The problem she has being with the queen, with, with he being the, the king, it's going to continue to fester. But even after this dream, this vision of hunting him down, missing him, wanting him to come home with her, Even after this charge to the readers, you know, count the cost before you go to bed with your spouse, we find that the wedding occurs. (laughs) She marries him despite the proverbial fox in the vineyard. This conflict of being he being king and she wanting him more to herself. Why does she marry him? Because he's the one she loves. (laughs) The chorus... And the narrators, if you will, uh, show us a scene change, and the scene now is apparently the wedding. Uh, perhaps it might even be a return to the opening of the book, or maybe even before the first scene in the book, because it's the wedding, and whenever the book opened, uh, it seemed to me that they were married already. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke scented with myrrh and frankincense and every fragrant powder of the merchant? This is how my wedding happened. You know it. Oh, no. <laughs> Look, Solomon's bed surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty men of Israel. All of them are skilled with swords and trained in warfare. Each, of, each has his sword at his side to guard against the terror of the night. Now, verse 7 seemed to answer verse 6. The procession coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke is none other than Solomon. The columns of smoke could be a reference to censers being swung in the front and the back of a procession. Solomon's bed is surrounded by 60 warriors. David knew 30 mighty men. Solomon knew 60. Had to one-up his own dad. And then verse 8 tells us that these warriors are at his side to guard against the terror of the night. Now, this is an interesting connection I found, and it's a little bit of a side trail, but you're my captive audience, so you're welcome. Some of you know that we Protestants have a Bible that is minus a few books and other Christian traditions. And in the apocryphal book of Tobit, chapter 3, there is a sad story about a gal named Sarah who had seven husbands. And each time before the wedding consummation, a demon, according to the story, would slay the husband, <laughs> Glad that didn't happen to me. So much so that Sarah is actually praying to die because she's considered cursed by other people. Now, some wonder then if this is the reference here that Solomon is protected. No demon is going to put a stop to their wedded bliss. I would note, though, that Tobit's events are supposed to happen right after the northern kingdom falls. And so this is three to four centuries after the time of Solomon. Now, if Song of Solomon was written maybe by a different author about Solomon long after he lived, it could be the case. But this was an interesting connection. We continue to hear from the chorus about the wedding procession. King Solomon made a carriage for himself with wood from Lebanon. So this is the premium wood of the day, not just any old wood, but wood from Lebanon. Rare, expensive, the rich and wealthy have this wood. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple. These are obvious royal ornaments and colors. Its interior is inlaid, by the love, uh, inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Inlaid with love, they're happy for the couple, Solomon and the bride. I remember when Christie and I were married. Some of you know the four Meyer sisters, and maybe you know them by different names now because now they're all married. But, uh, they were like unpaid helpers at our wedding along with other unpaid helpers. And they did it because they're nice people and I feel like they did it with love. That's kind of how I view this here. Sure, perhaps these young women of Jerusalem had to take care of Solomon's carriage whether they liked it or not, but they did it with love. They want the best for Solomon, the best for the bride. Do you have friends like that in your relationship? People who love you, people who even serve you at times, people who want the relationship to succeed. Story-wise, the chorus, the young women want the relationship to succeed, even though we're catching glimpses of problems festering in the narration. Verse 11, the chorus continues, "'Go out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon, "'wearing the crown his mother placed on him on the day of his wedding.'" The day of his heart's rejoicing. Gaze at King Solomon. And what we catch generally from the end of chapter 6 here is a royal wedding. All the pomp and circumstance, the wood of Lebanon, the gold, the silver, the procession. And you know what's interesting is that even though the bride who talks the most and seems to be the most aggressive lover in the relationship and is the main character of the story, but when we come to the wedding, who's the central focus? Solomon. This is because the peasant, uh, the bride from the vineyards who worked, is now the queen, the wife, the bride to the busy king, Solomon. And again, this is more groundwork, uh, groundwork for the conflict that's brewing She had to be wowed by all of this. Look at this huge procession. I was just expecting a small wedding. (laughs) All of chapter 4 and the first verses of chapter 5 is really some love talking between the husband to the bride. It's taking place in the wedding bed. As you go through it, the uh, Solomon really covers complimenting everything head to toe. (laughs) And I mean everything. And like other parts in the book, He's using some rather interesting compliments that um, are for the reader's benefit, not so much for the other character's benefit. And and a few of them I would like to highlight. So I I invite you to read your study guide commentaries to cover all of this. But for the sake of content, we're not going to cover all of this. But do look with me. Uh, In 4.1 we read, How beautiful you are, darling, how very beautiful, behind your veil your eyes are doves, doves being a symbol of purity, innocence, and virginity. This line, though, is almost ver- verbatim as the same in chapter 1, verse 15. And it may be a literary way to say, we're picking it up from that scene, <laughs> which I saw as the night after the wedding's festivities. But the one thing different from one fifteen and here in one is the mention of the veil, Now, I have one commentator who strongly argued that the man is speaking metaphorically here, that the veil could have been a reference to her long hair, perhaps hiding her face. He says this because the bride would wear a veil at the ceremony, but likely wouldn't have it on at night with what they're about to do. And he's about to describe everything on her face. And Middle Eastern veils were not like the ones we wear, uh, transparent. I don't know, I didn't realize it was such a big deal, and let's have a debate about it. It could just be that the husband is saying symbolically, now that I get to see you behind the veil. <laughs> one of these weird, funny word images that really aren't necessarily for her benefit, but for the readers, is the rest of verse 1. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Now that's the line I used to get Christie's heart, and you know it. <laughs> She's like, I'm sold, buddy. That's biblical. It's the ambience, it's the presence, it's supposed to stir up in the reader. Imagine being out in a nice gentle spring breeze and over on a mountainside you see some black goats just far enough you don't hear them but they're bounding down the mountainside, the black hair is glistening in the sun and you're, it's supposed to inspire a feeling of ease and rest and contentment as well as demand your attention. They have your attention and it puts you to peace. And so the idea that Solomon likes looking at her, (laughs) he can't help but want to gaze upon her. The sight of her brings peace and contentment and calm. Now don't hear me wrong the rest of chapter 4. There's enough romantic passion and excitement for everyone, but she's inviting and she has his attention. The flattery continues with more words that you could try to store away for a rainy day and see if they work on your spouse. Verse 2 Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Does anybody else read that and go, that's pretty detailed? (laughs) I don't get that specific in my compliments. (laughs) First of all, dental hygiene was not the greatest in that day, and so he's complimenting her white teeth. They're white like sheep, newly shorn sheep, coming up from washing. They glisten, they sparkle. They're bearing twins. In other words, she's got a full set of teeth. <laughs> she's not from Greer or Wee <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Sorry. <laughs> How about verse 4? This guy is loaded with some great one-liners. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it. All of them are shields of warriors. This... <laughs> <laughs> never thought the Bible could be so humorous. (laughs) (laughs) This is more of a connection or a similarity of value or character than rather the the physical simile. It's not that her neck is gigantic or impenetrable. You know, in English, we might say, lift your head high, straighten your neck. (laughs) We're referring to character qualities. We're basically saying, have some confidence, face the day bravely. Perhaps Solomon is saying here that he finds her as a refuge. He finds her as a defense from the world. He finds her to be dignified, a woman of quality. Uh, chapter 8 actually has a lot about her character being modest and pure, not being taken or falling for just any man or being open for just any man. So that could be the case here. She's a, she's a woman of self-worth, good quality. Uh, the thousand shields also may, might be a reference to fine jewelry about her neck too. I don't know. Now, any person who reads and notes the body parts he's making reference to can deduce much of the imagery in the chapter, but we do come to chapter 4, verse 8, and we hear from Solomon to the bride. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amana, from the summit of Sanir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. I, and some commentators, not all, take this to be an actual invitation to a physical place as opposed to imagery referring to their bodies. One commentator suggests that this, <clears throat> in the middle of what newly wedded couples do on their wedding bed, he is inviting his new wife to a honeymoon of sorts, in fact, to her roots, to the Lebanon countryside. They'll go to Mount Lebanon, they'll descend from the peaks and summits, they'll venture out into the dens of lions, which were around in Israel back then, and where leopards stroll. Now, a few reasons to take this view. If you've been with me the last few weeks, we've seen this gal be a little bit preoccupied with her humble roots, contrasted with uh, the young woman of Jerusalem. She said she's a lily of the valley, or as I said, a dandelion on the front lawn. And here is the king in the palace saying, in essence, you know, I know it's been hard. Why Why don't we go to the place of your roots, remind you of it? Why don't we make this transition a little easier? And in fact, we will see them take a trip in the eighth chapter of the book, so that's how I take it. We jump down to verse 12 in chapter 8. And a few things I want to explain. The husband is giving compliments to her. He says, my sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden in a sealed spring. And first, he uses this title for her a lot, sister. Um, in our language and culture, that's the term that young men use if they're talking to ladies that are not their biological relation and they want to make a point. I think of you as a sister, not a romantic interest. (laughs) We heard earlier in our study that she dreamt about taking him to her childhood home. Later on in the book, she's going to say she wished he was her brother growing up. (laughs) Now here's the idea. Brothers and sisters in that culture could be a little bit more publicly friendly with one another, and nobody would bat an eye. A slight peck on the cheek is common among family in that culture. However... For unmarried romantic interests and even romantic interests, that culture really made no allowances for even slight public displays of affection. So the idea of when lovers use this sort of family language, they are saying, I wish I could show off my love for you just a little in public. (laughs) Not unlike couples in our day and age, sitting with their arm around each other, holding hands when they go for a rock, things like that. Locked garden, sealed spring. In the context of the entire passage here, Solomon is saying, you've kept yourself for me, (laughs) an ideal to strive for. It's what the bride has been saying in her two bookmarks so far. I charge you to not let love awaken until the appropriate time. And then it's interesting in verse 16, she uses that word in the passage. The bride finally says, awaken. (laughs) It is the appropriate time. But now we come to the end of the remaining verses in chapter 4. And then it's, let's see here. Oh, we come to the remaining end of what we're studying today. And I want to pick up in song 5, verse 2, from the bride. And like I said from the beginning, it's likely another dream. So song chapter 5, verse 2, she says, I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. Now, that right there to me makes a strong case that she's about to dream the following events. But the primary plot is perhaps all too familiar for her and for many married couples. A sound, she says, my love was knocking. Solomon's at the door. Here's what he says. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. You know, he's laying it on thick. (laughs) Even for this book. Sister, darling, dove, perfect one, four compliments. He's got something on his mind. For my head is drenched with dew and my hair with droplets of the night. So we get the picture here, it's either really late in the night or really early in the next morning. And he's just getting done, likely with affairs of the state, but he's got something on his mind. He said, open to me, and most commentators agree that yes, he's perhaps at a locked door, but he's also wanting to do more than just come inside that door. Are you ready for the bride's responses? They're actually pretty classy, you're going to like them. Here she goes, verse 3. I have taken off my clothing. How can I put it back on? (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) Like Solomon saying, that's okay. (laughs) That's kind of the point. But some say that she's being coy here. (laughs) Like, I know what you want to do, and though I don't want to do it, let me just depart with some knowledge for you. And then she throws a religious excuse at him I have washed my feet. How can I get them dirty? Jews would ceremonially wash their feet before getting in bed at night. It's another visible form that says, I want to be pure before God. And so all of their travels that day were hopefully washed off, hoping to start the next day ceremonially clean. So it was religious, but also think of it as our routines before bedtime. She's kind of like saying, I've turned the lights out. I stopped reading my book. I have every intention of sleeping now. You want me to undo all that? And then the bride continues my love thrust his hand through the opening and my feelings were stirred for him. If you have one of our study guides, I put um, a meager illustration of a door that was likely in the room. It was one where a hole exists for family members to stick their arm through and reach the lock for themselves. Why would this hole exist for situations like this? Perhaps family members were going to bed, they were expecting somebody to come In most cases, there was a big piece of wood that would cover that hole. But if they're expecting one person or another person, they would leave it open. And while the bride and Solomon are having this exchange, Solomon puts his arm through. He's trying to come in. Perhaps it's not always easy to do in the dark. And apparently his forwardness has got her changing her mind. But then something happens. We read, I rose to open for my love, my hands "'Dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh, "'a poetic way of saying she's in the mood now "'to do what he has on his mind. "'She puts her hands on the handles of the bolt. "'I open to my love, but my love has turned and gone away. "'He's a king. "'He likely has other bedrooms to sleep in. "'Maybe he feels uh, deflated. "'Maybe his ego has been hurt. "'Great reasons. "'Your clothes are off and you washed your feet. "'I should have known better than to ask you, apparently.' And before we unpack some of the psychological issues, let's just finish this text. So he's gone away deflated. Now she's in the mood and he isn't. She says, my heart sank because he had left. I sought him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. So now we start hearing some of that first dream we started with, right? He's gone now. She's looking for him. And then we meet the city guards, the night watchmen again, but this time they're not helpful at all. Verse 7, The guards who go about the city found me. They beat and wounded me. They took my cloak from me, the guardians of the walls. That kind of escalated quickly. (laughs) Kind of unexpected. Besides the first line that seems very apparent that she's dreaming, this is another reason they take this whole situation to be a dream. We're going to find in verse 8 really... No reference to a response to this. There's no her rushing off to seek help. There's no the king caught wind of this and had these night watchmen thrown in the jail or executed. It's just, ouch, okay, now let's move to verse 8. Plot moves on. Some suggest that this attack is a dramatic dreamlike imagery to suggest that she felt guilty, that she felt like she should be punished. That's a theory. I personally don't know what to do with the attack and I don't plan on dwelling on it since we don't seem to have any quick reasonings for it. But like I said, bizarrely after this attack, she just moves on to say, young woman of Jerusalem, I charge you. Now, doesn't that phrase sound familiar? Indeed, the bride again says this three times throughout the book, usually followed by an admonition to awaken love at the proper time. But we just had the wedding night. We just had a whole chapter describing a wedding night, and I didn't cover all of it. But isn't it interesting that after a couple gets married, they have nights and experiences like this? And he wants to, she doesn't, she wants to, but his ego is hurt. So this time she says, if you find my love, tell him that I am lovesick. She's missing him. She's missing him romantically and intimately. Now, some quick psychological unpacks. The idea here is that even in love, people get selfish, right? People get selfish. A quick read through this seems to make the gal out to be the bad guy in the story. She denied her lover. She got beat up. She's lovesick. She feels remorseful. But let's not overlook the bad timing of the husband. It's dark o'clock. He's very inviting. Hey, I'm sweaty and wet. with the weather? It's three in the morning. The sun will be up in a few hours. I know you're trying to sleep. Can I hop in bed? Like, thanks, <laughs> they're selfish. He wants it when he wants it, she wants it when she's finally been drawn out and thought about it. she denied him she's he's going to deny her selfish, and in light of the whole story of the book, it's just par for the course for what's been what they've been worried about. He's the king, he's getting home at some ungodly hour. Oh, nice of you to finally come home and oh, this is what you want to do, okay. It's kind of coming to a boiling point. Maybe she denied him because she's tired, but it's it's been building too. And this is what real love is like. There is mountaintop experiences, just as the book presents it, right before some valleys. These two are committed to one another. She, in the first dream, was seeking the one I love, the one my soul loves. I'm committed. We saw the wedding night. They're certainly in love, but then they still have a propensity in the marriage to be selfish. You know, there's a command in the Bible that many pastors don't preach on. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. Paul says, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Very romantic, Paul, right? So you don't sin, do this. <laughs> but it's true And then Paul unpacks it further, and he speaks to our book here in Song of Songs. He says, A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for whenever you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control wonder if you heard a key phrase in that. Selfless. Like anywhere else in life, when it comes to this, married couples need to show grace, favor, and kindness and put the other person first. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. And this becomes more general in terms of the overarching problems that the bride is facing. She's married him, she's married the king, and thus she needs to be okay with being married to the king. She doesn't have rights over her own body, the king does. The king, too, showing a hint in this chapter four that we talked about, should respect that as well. You're having trouble, aren't you? Let's, let's, why don't we go visit your child at home? Let's take a trip there, see if. See if that will help you out. It's not his body, it's her body. And this is real love, two becoming one. Two separate people from separate backgrounds, having separate lives, living out in unity, dealing with their once separateness, dealing with the fact that who I am, or who I was and who I am, does not need to drown in you, but it needs to be yielded to you, submitted to you, and it goes both ways. And that's how life is with Christ, isn't it? I, I don't I still have a personality, um, even though I should be yielded to Christ at all times. I don't take on everything I don't look like God to people. God made me for a purpose. Couples, there are some situations, are there some situations where you might be selfish instead of selfless? Are there some situations where you need to be a little bit uh understanding of this of I'm wanting too much of me and not enough of you. Also, perhaps you need to know this. I'm not being understanding enough of who they are, and I'm too wrapped in who I am. It's give and take. The bride is having trouble of letting go of her not-too-distant life. That was not all pomp, circumstance, royal affairs of the state. And the husband hasn't been altogether thoughtful, showing up late, expecting things to go as he wanted, What's needed is more selflessness and less selfishness. More give and less take on both parts. Challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you to where you need to give more and take less. Let's pray. Oh, let me put that out there. Father, as I begin with praying that it's an interesting thing you've given to us in romantic love. Your word tells us, Paul tells us, that husband and wife are to be a representation of Christ in the church. And so, Father, this should hit us both ways. If if I'm married, am I being yielded to my spouse? or Am I demanding too much? Am I thinking too little of who they are? Father, in our walk with you, do I just think that you're along for the ride, that I'm the one driving and you can sure point out things, but I'm the one in charge? Or is it the other way around? Are we yielded to you? Are we saying as John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase? Father, however this hits us, I just pray for the grace to respond obediently. I pray that for those who have been convicted, that they would not minimize the conviction and seek to be away from this as quick as possible and let the words fade from our minds, but rather that your Holy Spirit would fan them into the fires of repentance and confession and seeking to be more like you by your grace and power. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for all that you do, and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.